Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. I had no idea that I wanted to run for the state legislature. It's interesting for me to see Portland really struggling with its identity. The amount that legislators are paid here in Oregon is on par with what legislators are paid in other states. I think we're right around the sort of average. That doesn't mean that's a good thing. If we can't over the last two years invest in ourselves, it's gonna be even harder in a more politically divided environment to come together and say, yes, we are worth it as people, as human beings, our families are worth it to pass some semblance of a living wage for us and our families. All right, folks. Very excited today. Uh, we got to talk to Representative Karen Power. When people ask me what kind of legislator I want to be, I often will use Representative Power as an example. I'm very sad she's leaving the legislature, but she has a really excellent reputation basically across all facets of folks involved in Oregon politics and government. She gets really good ratings in The Good, The Bad, and The Awful from Willamette Week. She's got some significant legislative accomplishments, some of which we talk about that she's helped shepherd through the process. And notably, she's one of the, the legislators who cited in reporting about the impact of legislator pay. Her representative, Rachel Prusak, and representative Anna Williams all announced at the same time that they wouldn't be running for re-election because of legislator pay. And we have a really interesting conversation about legislator pay and how to fix it. She's a graduate of Lewis and Clark Law School. She moved to Oregon from New Jersey. We talk a lot about that, which I found really fun. Plug for Bleachers, my favorite band, which we talk about in the interview with Rep Power. But Alex, you know, we talk abortion, we talk childcare, we talk legislator pay. What was the highlight for you? What, what did you find the most interesting? Yeah, I mean, this is our first guest we've talked to since the Roe v. Wade decision. So I think her mindset and just kind of responses to what the abortion landscape looks like in Oregon from here towards now, if, you know, Republicans get in power, I thought that was definitely an interesting segment that we had there. I also asked her this question, which you'll have to listen to to the very end of what is an underrated or under the radar issue right now that a lot of folks aren't talking about in Portland that you think is more important. So you'll have to tune in towards the end, listen to that, but really wide ranging conversation about policy and politics. So I think it was a really good episode. Yep. I actually love that last question and I liked Rep Power's answer as well. So hopefully folks stay tuned to listen through. But with that, if you haven't subscribed on YouTube, go do it. If you haven't subscribed to the pod, go do it. If you haven't subscribed to the newsletter, please subscribe to that as well. We really appreciate your support. And now for the interview with Representative Karen Power. All right, Representative Karen Power, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Ben. Great to be here. Hi, so, Alex. My first question, and I actually didn't know this about you until I was doing my preliminary research. So you grew up in New Jersey. You're from mm -hmm. the East Coast. How did you end up venturing over to Oregon? Oh, it is a long and circuitous route. <laughs> None of my family really, is, until I moved, lived west of Philly. Wow. We're like the East Coasters where the rest of the map of the United States is like an amorphous blob and somewhere on the other side of San Francisco and Seattle. <laughs> Okay. So I had a couple of friends from undergrad who went out and worked in Seattle for a summer and they came back and they were like, you guys, <laughs> this has beautiful mountains. There are no bugs. It never rains. It's like sunny until 10 o'clock at night. It's just ridiculous. This is magical land. And we all need to get out there. 
So we did. And then the first year we lived there, it broke like an all-time Seattle rainfall record. <laughs> the thing that comes into my mind is like that, that the Trump meme where he's like, worst trade deal of all time, worst deal. <laughs> like that with the weather. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was pretty terrible, but we signed a year lease. So uh, yeah, I lived in Seattle for three years and met my wife the last year, my now wife, the last year I was living up there. We went back to the East Coast because I thought I was still an East Coaster. Oh, really? For a year. Yeah, I did my first year of law school outside uh, in Boston and then quickly realized in like the first week, I was like, oh my gosh, they don't recycle out here. (laughs) And it made me uncomfortable. No, like culturally, I realized the Pacific Northwest had ruined me for living in other locations. And so then, so you go back to the East Coast and then quickly you turn back around and that's when you end up in Oregon. Yeah, I think we were there for three months before I applied transfer. No kidding. Very cool. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Alex? I've got to ask to, before I ask my background question, how many of your East Coast friends have, because I've been asked this a number of times, sometimes people just insinuate it. Usually it's clients. They'll say, they'll, I'll be like, oh, I'm from Oregon. And they'll say, oh yeah, Seattle. Like Seattle's a really cool city. I love going there. <laughs> how often does that happen with some of your friends from where you grew up? None of them can have pronounced Oregon, and I don't actually think they could probably put it on a map. <laughs> <laughs> did they? Did you have people reach? I thought, Alex, what I thought you were going to ask is, did you have people reaching out to you during, like, the 2020 Portland stuff? People being like, are you okay? What's going on? Or not really? No, because remember, New York was in such a state of chaos with its COVID right. case counts. And honestly, most of my most of my undergrad friends still live out there, and they were all trying to figure out, like, where do you live when New York the center of humanity stops closes. being New York. Yeah. Yeah, it closes. And I know it's interesting for me to see Portland really struggling with its identity when, I mean, most of the people I know who worked in downtown New York or lived in like Brooklyn left and haven't come back and are yeah. trying to figure out like, what is your 30 something identity when it's revolved around a city for 20 years? What does that look like for you growing up? You know? Totally. They didn't have time to worry about poor little Oregon. <laughs> they were worrying about themselves in New York. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 So I believe that you you first ran for the state ledge in 2016, which is when you won your first election. So what made you interested in engaging in the political process? But then also, I think that there's kind of an obvious turning point between someone who wants to, you know, maybe do local city government or a local position or something like that compared to actually running for something like the state legislature. Could you kind of walk us through like, what was your process there? How'd you kind of come to the decision? And what was your main interest when you first wanted to run? Yeah, of course, I am on team local government. First and (laughs) foremost, it's just, I would say outside of Portland, it is really exciting, fun, and interesting to get involved in local government. You know, it's really where your rubber literally meets the road and where you have an opportunity to work on parks and volunteer events and like building community in a very meaningful way. I went to my first neighborhood association meeting because I didn't know anybody in the neighborhood and thought I'd get a sense of meeting some other neighbors. And, you know, my neighborhood is much more politically active than I realized. So Hmm. I was in a meeting immediately with our state representative, former legislative council, and a bunch of other folks that had been very involved in Milwaukee. I turned around and I was like, everybody was doing Robert's rules order. And I was like, <laughs> Who did you succeed in the legislature? Kathleen Taylor. Oh yeah, that's right. Cause she yep. went to the Senate. Yes. And before that, Carolyn Telmay, 
past mayor of Milwaukee, was state representative for seven terms, 14 years. So did these folks like reach out to you and say, you really should consider running? Or were you like, you know, maybe this is something I want to do? Or how did that come together? I had no idea that I wanted to run for the state legislature. I got involved in my neighborhood association and was working on some community events. And this was back when I moved to Milwaukee when Stop Portland Creep was a actual official Clackamas commissioner slogan. And, and yet, you know, my wife and I moved down here because Portland was becoming pretty unaffordable 10 years ago. And we wanted to have a house where we could have our dogs and have a little bit more space. And we couldn't afford that in Portland. Um, so I more or less ended up on city council because there was a vacant seat. I knew the other folks who were thinking of running by reputation. And I thought I could do a better job and nobody else stepped up to run. Huh. And then, so that was on council or, or that was for the legislative seat? It's kind of something similar that happened with the ledge seat too. You know, I ran during sort of interesting inflection points where I think either other candidates were not ready to run or mm. their work situations didn't allow them to run. And, or when I ran for the state legislature in 2016, I was a queer pregnant environmental lawyer. So in the democratic primary, I think I very easy. So they didn't know, like, you know, everybody seemed pretty comfortable with me as a candidate, being values aligned with a lot of stakeholders, and nobody ended up running in the primary when I ran. And I've I've had two general election opponents in the three times I've run. How'd that go for them? <laughs> Probably not very well. We're going to talk about some of the major issues that you were a leader on in the legislature. But before, I want to start actually with legislator pay. You were in a bunch of newspaper articles where people cited you, Rep. Prusak, and Rep. Anna Williams as folks who cited legislator pay, the incredibly low compensation package for legislators, is one of the reasons why you had decided not to run again. So, like, we'll talk on the policy side, but before that, can you walk us through why did you decide not to run? Why was legislator pay an issue that prevented you from continuing your service? The amount that legislators are paid here in Oregon is on par with what legislators are paid in most other states. I think we're right around the sort of average. That doesn't mean that's a good thing. You know, our neighboring states, the North and South, both pay legislators a more living wage in line with the level of work it takes to help run a state and oversee state agencies. In my first, I'd say like two to three years, when you're not actually as a legislator in charge of running the committee or on any kind of significant work groups that help to oversee policy issues for the state or major sector commissions, it was less hard to balance my day job with legislative work. And that was even having... um, I had a six-month-old baby when I started in the legislature. Wow. It becomes increasingly hard when you start chairing or um, leading significant policy efforts or budget efforts to balance that with anything else, frankly, without doing something else less well than you'd like to. I think legislators run because we're type A people who like to overperform and love our constituents, love our districts, and want to do a good job it's increasingly hard to look at yourself failing in other ways, whether that's failing your family or failing to be 
fully present in your day job work. And you can't really fall down as a legislator. You know, it's of the utmost importance and we have constitutional obligations to help balance the budget. Mm-hmm. So I saw earlier last year, I decided, and I would say my, my previous nonprofit I worked for was nothing less than supportive, but I went part-time at my day job while in session right? while having a baby. Yeah. And then I had another baby and that meant usually I'm working nights and weekends for my other day job when we're in session. And when we're outside session, I go back to full-time at my day job and then work the legislative job nights and weekends. It's a lot of work. And we had multiple special sessions. Right. Uh, and the work has, it used to be that when we were not in session, the work dialed back. That hasn't been true since the start of the pandemic and it continues to not be true. And so with increasing seniority, increasing responsibility, you know, I saw uh, next year, I really wouldn't be able to sustain the level of responsibility that I would have liked to take on in the legislature and still maintain a day job. Mm-hmm. And we can't afford to have two small kids and, you know, we're fortunate to have a mortgage and serve in the legislature for what it pays uh, on a yearly basis. The tragedy of that is, and I think of this is, I think this is true for all three of the legislators you included, like you were kind of, you all chaired committees and all had basically been in charge of some complex or high profile. Like we're going to talk about with you about childcare and car, but like you had reached this level of the legislature where your level of influence was probably at its peak. And I think Oregon is worse off because of this sort of failed compensation model or not failed outdated compensation model that I think was built. Like, I don't know what your personal feeling is on this, but my sense is a citizen legislature probably made a lot of sense when it was designed for what the job was at the time. But as you mentioned, like the level of complexity and workload just doesn't match that format anymore. And particularly when, you know, one of the main challenges that we see a lot of is like this insufficient government oversight, lack of government accountability that necessitates greater legislative oversight and accountability. And you can't, it's just, we have a system that doesn't quite work. So I guess my next question, my follow-up question there is like on the policy side, I know there was a sort of effort at the end of the last session, the short session to try to get something through. What are your thoughts on what the legislature should do in 2023 to address this problem? Do you think it's like setting a number that's a higher number? I think we're at like it's low 30,000s now plus per diem. How do you think about reforming legislator pay to address the, the problem? I think, you know, I laud the states that have been able to pass independent commissions and get those up and running and have the systems in place to support, you know, impartial look at legislative pay. I had deeply hoped we'd be able to fix it in a year when so many seats were going to be turning over anyway, so many folks were leaving, because if we can't over the last two years invest in ourselves as colleagues, it's going to be even harder for the next generation of legislators in a more politically divided environment to come together and say, yes, we are worth it as people, as human beings, our families are worth it to not sustain this level of financial stress and to care about each other enough to pass a, some semblance of a living wage for us and our families. Mm -hmm. I just, I have 
I can hope, but I don't see it happening soon, if I'm being honest. And the driver for that, just like, you know, saying the quiet part out loud is like people are scared that the political consequences of legislators voting to increase their own pay will have an, will basically cause people who vote for it, most likely Democrats, to lose their elections. That's the fear that people talk about when it comes to legislator pay. Very rare. I don't hear many people, including Republicans, there's some, but not a lot saying, nope, we should be paid what we're paid. Like this should be a part-time, you know, low commitment level job. Really the arguments are almost all about politics, it seems to me. Yeah. And I think, I think politicians have figured out workarounds to kind of make it work financially for them, but they're not ones that are, I think, good for democracy. You know, we have a current state where our campaign accounts can be used for a wide variety of things, including paying campaign staff that may or may not be related to you or family and friends consultants. That's one way of sort of offsetting the low legislative pay. Folks use that for miscellaneous expenses related to campaigns, which also cross over into household budgets. People use it for gas when they're traveling uh, during campaign season. Um, clothing, um, you know, your your phone bill. So that's that's one thing. The others, you know, I think it plays into the reason why so many legislators employ staff that are family members. Right. And and I think, you know, out of good faith, a number of my colleagues, chiefs of staff are often their spouses, in part because it's really hard, I think, on a marriage or a partnership to be spending half the year hours away from your spouse. But, you know, the fact remains our chiefs of staff are usually paid twice as much as we are. And I can see that helping, you know, to offset a family budget. Yeah. So I just, I, you know, I think we'd be less less apt to be accused of conflicts if we didn't have to choose to try to figure out a way to not use our positions for influence somewhere else. And I think, I think it'd be less stressful in our families. Speaking of conflicts, and this will be my last point on this, Alex, and then I'll have you transition is, you know, so I work for the department of education right now. I can't keep this job if I'm fortunate enough to be elected to the legislature. So I've been looking and kind of thinking about what I want to do to, you know, I I don't think there's any way where I'll make, maybe I'll pull it off, but like, I'm probably going to be taking some level of a pay cut, even with additional work, because I, I want to be able to dedicate myself to the legislature while it's in session. There's almost no job I can think of that I could take that wouldn't present some sort of conflict with a vote in the legislature where like, so, you know, for example, I could work for a school district or a university, but those are major <laughs> budgets that the legislature will vote on. You know, I could w- work for a trade association, but all of those trade associations have major interests before the legislature. Like there's no way to do it and feel like you're completely free from potential conflicts, except for having a living wage where all you do is serve the people. And that's one of my fears about legislator pay is that they'll bump it from like, 30 to 50 or something, which 50,000, you know, for most, many people in the legislature would still be a pretty significant pay cut that would require some sort of outside compensation. So it's a tricky problem, but I hope that the legislature will be able to address it, but it sounds like you're not super optimistic, which makes me less optimistic. I'm just less optimistic about the time frame to which I see that change happening. And it's, Part of the reason why I decided to resign when I did, 
Mm. You know, I think it will become, I, I just don't see the obligations on public office dialing back anytime soon, given what we see on the horizon. But 50,000, right, if, if you were to peg it to, you know, median wage or something like that, that gives voters something to understand. I mean, right. it's amazing how many people I talk to think that we make gobs of money as legislators. Of thousand, yeah. Like we're super well paid. I mean, folks who are retired on PERS make more than our governor does. You know, and that is true of all of our higher elected offices. So it is an active deterrent to qualified people running for office. Because especially right now, you know, you're going to make the best financial decision for yourself and your family. And if you're going to do that, it is not running for any level of public office. Totally. Sorry, Ben. <laughs> no, it's right. And like, frankly, you know, I want to have kids someday. And like, I've been talking openly, my partner and I talk about this, like, I don't know how possible that is. You made it work for a period of time. And I think that's probably what it might look like for me too. It's like, but at some point you, you, you have to put your family first you hate to have to choose between public service and like your own family. So hopefully, I, I hope I never have to be put in the same kind of position that you were put in, but it seems like that's likely in the next few years. I'm far from being unique in that circumstance. I mean, you can look at the number of people who have left yep. with kids or professional obligations. I'd say like kids going to college or, you know, post-secondary school, also something that caused people to have to move on. Um, it is not hard to dig deep and then unpack why folks have run for county commission or mayor and other positions around the state. I mean, you make what four times as much, three times as much as county commission in most other locations. So yeah, it's, we are not new. We just said that quiet part out loud. That's right. Alex. Yeah. So I want to ask about very recent news related to the Supreme court overturning Roe v. Wade. And essentially, to kind of sum up the issue, to some extent, it was a 5-4 decision at the Supreme Court. I know there was something strange, basically, with how Chief Justice Roberts voted, but it's essentially a 5-4 decision. And uh, I had originally thought when Roe v. Wade would be overturned, that sort of what it would look like is that the issue totally goes back to the states and that you would see a lot of red states basically voting to ban abortion, and you would see a lot of blue states likely voting to expand access to it. Uh, but as I've read more about the issue, I realized it's actually quite more complicated than that, because partially what the decision does too has to do with certain laws or certain rights enshrined within the state constitutions. So my first question is, could you give us kind of an overview based on the news that just happened of what abortion access looks like right now in, in Oregon? So, you know, credit to advocates and the coalition who work to protect reproductive health in the state that immediately uh, after the 2016 presidential election, they began working to bring legislation in the 2017 legislative session uh, and passed a bill called the Reproductive Health Equity Act. Mm -hmm. uh, that codifies Roe into state state statute here, so state law. I don't think it really, their foresight and work puts Oregon head and shoulders above most other states in protecting a woman's right to choose and a woman's ability to access abortion care. For here, you know, for now, for here in Oregon, we do not have any restrictions on abortion. And the decision, the Dobbs decision does not affect that. 
And the last I saw in some of the media coverage is that because we are such um, a strong state on protecting abortion rights, our clinics are already seeing an influx in people coming here for abortion care. Um, and that will likely continue in the 2022 session. My colleagues and I passed a $15 million fund um, to help with increased costs that folks also foresaw. We know that the Supreme Court and Congress are probably not going to stop there, and other states are not going to stop there either. So, I, you know, unfortunately, I think we're going to have increased litigation costs, states against states, mm. as we fight out what this means for our jurisdictions when you're trying to criminalize acts or supportive actions outside of your state boundaries. Mm. So, so sorry. So, just just to clarify that. An example of that might be in, I mean, nothing like this has happened yet, but I guess you're, you're saying something like it might, is that if a woman goes and gets an abortion in Oregon, and she's originally from Texas, that the state of Texas might actually sue Oregon for allowing her access to that because it's illegal in Texas, or did I just totally? No, I think, you know, we saw some local politicians begin to threaten to try to overreach beyond their state boundaries on what the scope of their legal authority would be and try to expand state statutes. I mean, I think some of the, this is a years long movement to erode a woman's right to choose and her bodily autonomy. I don't think they're going to stop at this, this simple decision. They're going to try to quash, quell, or limit access to abortion in other states that have strong pro-choice laws. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I guess, and then my, my last question on this is, I have a pretty good understanding of some of the policies that the pro-life folks want to pass. And I think it's it's a little bit more straightforward, right? In states like Mississippi, they're just moving forward and say, I, there may be a couple of exceptions, but basically it comes down to no more abortion except maybe under very specific circumstances. Uh, I think that's a pretty straightforward policy to understand. In terms of what pro-choice folks are doing in Oregon and kind of the state of abortion, like let's say that let's say Republicans win everything, uh, which of course is not going to happen, but they win the governorship, they win the state Senate, they win, they win the, the state house. Would it be possible for them to enact a ban on abortion? Or is there something enshrined in the state constitution that would stop them for that? What does what the kind of state of play look like from that perspective? Hmm. You know, I was reading something this morning where Ginsburg had pushed for an approach to Roe rooted in equality. Uh, jurisprudence. We do have a stronger constitution than most other states on our, um, one of the provisions in our constitution is stronger on equality than most others. And it does affect some, some of our legislation from time to time in a good way. Uh, it's just an extra consideration. I'd say, yes, you know, if we looked like Texas all of a sudden come November, in 2022, there would be no reason to expect that my colleagues would not try to pass the same type of legislation as our neighboring states, you know, Idaho or others. We have these strong protections in state statute here because Oregon has chosen to elect Democratic majorities for the last decade. If this is continues to be a top value for them and Oregon voters have voted again and again than it is, then this is this is a this is an election that will determine 
bodily autonomy for women. And I'm going to take it too for the sort of the pro-life movement, because if folks were actually pro-life, we would pass some sort of paid family leave so that women were not put into poverty and families are not put into poverty when they had kids. And also we pass any kind of semblance of a, you know, early childhood support system, like most other major countries, Congress had an opportunity to that and Republicans did not. So I don't, you know, putting family, you know, the number one predictor of poverty is becoming a mom. No kidding. Yeah. Learned that my first year of being a legislator. So, so the number one predictor of poverty, meaning the most, the transition in in someone's life of becoming a mom makes them more, more likely than any other transition to be in poverty. Yeah. Cause we give no support to families here in this country or minimal support. That's like, it's, it's crap. Well, so to the political dimension, to your point, like there's all these questions about 2022 and, you know, what does this decision mean? Like, and, and especially in states like Oregon, where we have passed protections over a period of decades to ensure that abortion care is, is accessible to everyone or to everyone who needs it. If voters understand that they're always one election away in Oregon from those rights being peeled back, I think it changes the dynamic. I don't like this is all hypothesizing. I don't actually know how, but like we've always had Roe as sort of a backdrop where like there was a, a survey, I think it was the Oregon Values and Beliefs survey that basically said abortion was one of the lowest priority issues for folks in Oregon prior to this decision because it was just an assumption. Every like it's always going to be protected. And I do feel like. I feel like there has to be a shift in people's mindset after seeing the Supreme Court do something that like didn't seem possible, at least to people in my generation. Like it wasn't something that people were thinking about two or four years ago, even though the conservative movement has been focused on this for a long time. I do feel like there, it, you know, people might be upset about inflation and might be unhappy with Joe Biden. I think those are fair concerns and criticisms, but I do think that for a lot of voters, access to abortion is a really important issue and hasn't been salient because it didn't seem under threat until this election. So we'll see what happens in 2022 in Oregon, but I I suspect it will be a more powerful motivator than some people think. Okay, so I'm going to transition us actually to childcare, which perfect transition with your point about poverty. I don't know. I don't know how this works. So maybe you can explain this first. Like, does the speaker go to you and say, hey, I want you to be in charge of childcare issues? Or do you go to the speaker and say, hey, I care a lot about this. I want to work on these issues. Um, You were kind of one of the you were one of the legislative leaders. How did that happen that you became a leader on childcare policy? My daycare shut down in the middle of the pandemic. (laughs) And all of a sudden, you know, we were I was in the middle of helping my nonprofit figure out how we were going to keep people employed and work going across three states while we were on daily briefing calls with the governor's office about the pandemic response. And I had a three and a half year old running around and we didn't know how and when our daycare was going to reopen because everything closed. You know, uh, some daycares reopened as emergency childcare centers under the state so that essential workers would have a safe place to put their kids during the pandemic um at enormous risk you know to themselves and their kids and and child care workers my own daycare sent out an email asking people to pay uh for child care for right closures started the first week of march second week of march we would have already paid march tuition they sent out an email in april saying 
you know, our margins are non-existent. Can you please, if you can afford to play, if you're continuing to be employed through the pandemic, if you can pay your April tuition, it's gonna help us to keep our teachers and their families afloat. And I helped some of our daycare teachers apply for unemployment um, after that point, but it, you know, it just drove home how tenuous our entire early childhood system is. And so Representative Zika and Hay had already kind of bonded over having small kids upstairs in the house member lounge. No kidding. Yeah, he's got two small kids. Well, they're bigger now, but a daughter and a son. And our youngest boys are not that far off. So they'd often been filching chocolate milk upstairs in the house member lounge, <laughs> getting them sandwiches and snacks and stuff while they were there with us for the day. And so he and I and former representative Sherry Halt started you know, a group chat and started talking more frequently about how we could save our daycare system and our early childhood system. So we sort of concocted a plan to start asking our colleagues if we could earmark some emergency dollars from the federal government to go out in non-competitive grants for daycares across the state, because if they closed, nobody was going to be able to get back to work. I was honestly slightly terrified that if my daycare closed forever, I didn't know how it would continue working. Like, you know, the, and here in the metro area, your wait lists pre-pandemic were six months. And I really I adore my son's teacher, my kids' teachers. So it was born out of, this is a thing that many legislators are paying attention to because not very many people have kids in daycare. And I just started reaching out to the state agencies to ask for briefings. The, I mean, it's hard not to draw a parallel between the fact that your status as a parent of young children is what is essentially helping drive you out of the legislature and your status as a parent of young children was the thing that helped you identify this key problem in state government that you ended up helping to solve. Like there's a there's a big problem there, but that we've already sort of covered that. So my question about like, give us an overview. I think House Bill 3073 was the was the high profile childcare bill. Can you explain what were the provisions of that bill? What did it actually do? Yeah, it's it's a lengthy bill because of the the state statutes that it affects, but here's the key thing that we're trying to solve for. We get federal government block grant dollars to help support low-income families with child care assistance, child care subsidy assistance so they can pay for child care. That money flows through the federal government and goes through DHS and arrives at um, our employment-related daycare program. On the other hand, under the Department of Education is where our um, early learning division sits and the Office of Child Care that oversees regulations and licensing for our child care facilities. Hmm. So as we were working through getting emergency dollars out to help keep them um, open, you know, have, have them be able to survive the pandemic, our dollars and our governance don't align and so the amount of creative thinking that had to go into getting you know, these divisions to work with these divisions to get emergency dollars out to the folks, you know, the, the people who regulate don't have the financial relationship with the providers and not everybody accepts employment related daycare. Uh, so to get the money out to this group of people was difficult, hmm. more difficult than it should have been. If our state and and so advocates in the state had already been looking long term, ideally in a perfect world we would begin to align money and 
systems together so that everything would be under one roof for efficiency and alignment. And this accelerated that work. Hmm. So, uh, you know, in tandem with the governor's office and their leadership and the agencies, we introduced 3073, which begins a multi-year process to create a new state agency to oversee early learning and care. So there's, so we've covered how some federal relief dollars got put into the field to support um, childcare providers. We covered now the sort of like governance infrastructure getting realigned to basically match the functions that are expected of agencies. What, how would you describe the state of childcare affordability in Oregon right now? Um, is it, are we, are we still in a pretty significant crisis or do you think things are getting better? You know, what are the next steps? No, in fact, I think based on, sorry, my dog. <laughs> We're a dog friendly. Uh, she's been lying in the sun. I think. It's gotten worse because now our daycares are having to compete for labor with rising wages in most other low um, uh, low wage sectors. You can go make more money at most retail shops than you can working in daycare because we've already hit sort of the market ceiling on what families can afford to bear. And something like just north of 70% of the early childhood sector is supported by private um, private pay families. Um, comparatively, you know, the state is yes, the largest purchaser of daycare, but it's almost entirely through the federal dollars that we receive. And, you know, see my comments earlier about federal government not exactly supporting uh, families in making childcare accessible and affordable. So by the state's estimations, we've lost about a quarter to 20% of daycares since the start of the pandemic. And the $100 million that we earmarked in the 2022 session will hopefully over the next few years, help community-based organizations recruit and retain new businesses or help businesses expand. And they're hoping to get back about a third of those slots. So it is a, you know, my own daycare has a wait list even tour that's several months out. Last I checked earlier this year. Um, you know, I there's there may be daycare, but it may not be anywhere near where you live or work. Um, I think almost all of our counties qualify as infant deserts where there's minimal slots available for infants. Um, so just so I have, that, just so I have this right, after a hundred million dollar investment, we're hoping to bring back a third of what is lost. So in no world are we, we're going to be worse off than we were two years ago, no matter what happens, essentially, unless there's some magical, yeah. yeah. It doesn't pencil. I mean, it just, you can't, if you're a college student looking at these fields, do you want to graduate with debt? Because you need some sort of equivalent degree in early education, um, generally to be like a lead teacher in many of these daycares, mm. you're not going to make much more than thirty thousand. Wow! You know, many of these daycares also don't have the ability to offer benefits, um, and average childcare costs exceed you know your average college tuition at this point. It's a complete market failure. The Daily did a great podcast on this. I think it was last fall, where because of our lack of investment on the on the from government in this and making this affordable. I mean, can you imagine if we just privatized the K through twelve system? 
Right. And so like, I don't know why this blows people mind, blows people's minds that we don't also extend that same support to early learning care. It's not as if you're, you suddenly have a job that works, you know, and allow, it is so hard to cobble together work around daycare. Yeah. And I am super lucky to have a very reliable daycare, but they are so short staffed that my son's lead teacher has COVID and I need to go pick them up at three because they don't have enough staff to cover. Um, and that's normal. So many of our daycares are struggling to recruit for longer hours or are struggling to retain people. Uh, I will say the state is looking at licensing qualifications because pre-pandemic Oregon has some of the most stringent. Oh. Um, and, you know, we've had, a. unfortunately, you know, we have incidents where kids have been harmed or have died in care. So we do have strong, stringent requirements to become a teacher. But, you know, it's sort of like... That's a double-edged sword. You don't want to like <laughs> lower the bar to entry so you have lower quality or less skilled teachers, um, but you don't want to prevent people who would otherwise be great teachers from entering the workforce. That's a tricky, tricky question. So I think, you know, the really the, the solution it leads you to is some sort of private and public investment yep. in childcare. Other states are, are leading the way. Oregon's... Um, to Oregon's credit, we are not first in line, but we are doing better than a lot of other states. We, thanks to Rep Zika, his partnership within his caucus um, and the coalition of advocates and really smart organizations that um, are leaders on this in the state and nationally, we're sort of among the next like B team of states working to fix the structure so that when we do investments, it's going to be efficient use of those dollars. Um, but this is going to continue. I don't know if you read Business Oregon's executive summary of sort of their post-pandemic recovery that came out a couple of weeks ago, but childcare was mentioned as one of the top concerns from major industries in, um, in the economic recovery. No kidding. I'm going to bookmark. What was the, what was the Business Oregon? Uh, it's, they have an executive report that they just released a couple of weeks ago on a equitable post-pandemic recovery we will based try on to... surveys and interviews with business sectors and others. And, you know, it, it touches on things like, you know, labor force. Um, I think housing is in there, housing affordability, right? Getting people to be able to move here or keeping people here. But for the first time, childcare is rising the top as a concern um, from major business industries. We will try to link that in the uh, podcast description. Alex? Yeah, it's not particularly surprising either, I would say. Uh, okay, so two questions related to Portland or the Portland area. Uh, my first question is that uh, there was a report that was published by the Oregon Office of Economic Analysis. I believe that the economist's name is Josh Lehner, who published it. Mm -hmm. And his report essentially had said that Almost 170,000 uh, households in the Portland area have been effectively priced out of the Portland real estate market just in the past six months. Uh, and of course, that uh, I'm—I didn't actually delve into the report, but I'm also assuming that what economists consider to be priced out is maybe actually much lower 
uh, than what people can afford as of, you know, Zillow said I could own like a million dollar house and there's absolutely no way I could afford, my wife and I could afford a million dollar house. Uh, but so part of my question is, uh, I think, uh, and, you know, obviously interest rates are going to keep going up. I don't think there's any signs that those will go back down at least for the next few years. Uh, we talk a lot about the kind of policy solutions to this and it doesn't really seem, you know, everybody has different answers and it's obviously not an easy issue to, to, to solve, but I'm curious of kind of what you're hearing from your constituents on this. Like, is this a top issue that you continue to run into more often? Like, do you kind of feel this bumping up the list of priorities for the folks you represent? Uh, kind of curious of like some of the stories that you're hearing about the market in general from uh, obviously looking at the numbers is great, but I think always hearing from actual people really puts a face to this stuff and what the problem really is. So I represent an area that already gentrified heavily. When the orange line opened, uh, rents increased significantly in many of our major multifamily uh, housing units, like the kind that you drive by where you know that there's at least 250 to 500 units there. Many of those were bought by um, out-of-state real estate investment trusts for much more than they originally sold for. And I watched, you know, our rent climb from, I had a friend who lived in a studio for like 650, I think 700 when we first moved here. And that is now going for 13 to 1400. Um, there's 250 wow. units going in a couple blocks from my house that are all gonna be market rate, um, class A units. And we need more housing. So that is great. Like, we need all, all kinds of housing, all kinds of ownership opportunities um, to help keep you know, units that may be just getting older, more affordable. Um, but I read uh, Josh Lerner's piece as well. I think the upshot is, you know, we don't know how long these interest rates will hold. It may be that this increase turns around if there's a bit of a recession, but um, I believe it's directly tied to, you know, the, the amount that folks can afford in a, in a monthly mortgage amount spiking mm -hmm. rapidly and placing it financially out of reach. You know, and we've seen pressures happen on our farther flung suburban areas. I think it's just a matter of do people choose to buy further out if gas is $5 and more a gallon, or do they wait to see how things are going to shake out over the next six to 12 months to see if, um, you know, global wars and inflationary spikes and supply chain disruptions and labor market disruptions, you know, um, lockdowns in China affected the supply chain in an enormous mm. way. Um, if, if we have some sort of stability in the global pipeline, whether we can ease off on those. Josh has, you know, repeatedly said that he's confident we'll avoid fairly confident. He doesn't see an imminent recession, but we're living through unprecedented times. You know, you kind of feel like you never know what's gonna be around the corner three to six months from now. Most major financial firms are cautioning that they're not advising clients years in advance anymore because um, things are kind of still settling out from, you know, the pandemic and, inflation. So what I hear from my constituents is they're not going to move. You know, folks are choosing to stay put 
longer houses are uh, increasingly becoming um, harder to find, but sitting on the market longer or that I'm seeing price cuts in our area because I just try to keep an eye on Zillow and get a sense of how my community's doing on a sort of sales market. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've saw a lot come online on Zillow last month, I think probably in anticipation of interest rates rising. It was like all of a sudden things popped up all over the place and now they're sitting there for a little bit longer. Um, gosh, super esoteric, Alex, but permitting the permitting process at the local level is probably one of the most outcome determinative things. And it's outside the purview of state legislature largely because we're not local policymakers. But mm-hmm. um, I know of some developers who have come down here to Milwaukee because you get to talk to an actual person or there's like three people in charge of the permitting process where you have to bounce from bureau to bureau at a larger city. And you have a little bit more certainty from a financing perspective than you would in Portland. You know, I would think that that could be a major work group area alone in a major city. Yeah, something I think you'd find a, a lot of bipartisan support from on the right uh, to revamp those permitting processes as well. Uh, and then my last question uh, sort of just relates to Portland broadly, but I feel like when we see, uh, and and to be fair, we haven't, I guess we've spoken to a good number of Portland officials on this podcast, but generally when people are reading the news, I think the things they hear about Portland are, in terms of issues are affordability, homelessness, you know, uh, crime, disorder, all of that sort of thing. But I'm curious of someone who is represented, obviously a, a slice of the Portland area, it's not like you represent all of Portland, uh, for the past few years now is what is one issue in your mind that is really flying under the radar uh, in terms of that? Uh, and it could be broadly impacting Oregonians or maybe just Portland, but I'm curious of like, what's, what are the, what's an issue that like, we just don't really hear that much in the news about that you think is really important. Oh, that is such a good question, Alex. And that was not meant to be a gotcha. So we'll edit out the, the delay in answer. <laughs> No. Uncharacter- <laughs> uncharacteristically great question from Alex Titus. We are very impressed. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like we clearly read all the same news. And I, okay, so here, Alex, I'm just going to completely spitball an answer to your question. Um, and it's just based off of my own experience in visiting my parents in New Jersey a couple of times, which is like a terrible way to make any kind of policy judgment off of anecdotes. So I just want to like, if there's like a caveat, little disclaimer, you can run in the back, grab power, may not know what she's talking about. (laughs) Um, I, to a certain extent, feel like our collective disquietness right now, our unease with and uncertainty with where, where we're going as a region, like what is our used to have a brand identity that was very cool and hip and often very exclusionary and dismissive of a lot of other experiences. Based on going back and visiting my folks when I could, as soon as I could, because my parents are older and live by themselves in New Jersey, it shocked me going back to New Jersey over the last uh, year to see how few people were still social distancing and and I'd like come fly out of Portland where everybody's still masked and people are very far away from each other and hand sanitizers are everywhere and go to New Jersey where the restaurants are packed, 
nobody's wearing a mask. I was the only person wearing a mask in a grocery store. Things were sort of back to normal. And they had similar public health guidelines, but, you know, I don't know if here in the Portland metropolitan area, we just follow rules better. I don't know, or have like, I don't, something about our collective response to this, I think has embedded an extra layer of trauma and disconnectedness. Mm. You know, I, um, I went back and visited my folks several times and over the summer and in the winter, even as case counts rose. And, and people were like kind of jokey about it. Like, you know, somebody would be like, well, I can put a mask on if you want me to, but it doesn't really matter. You know, it, it just, I watched as it seemed like everybody was back to usual much faster. And I don't know what there is about that. Um, I grew up in an area in New Jersey where you're very prideful about where you come from. You love New Jersey, mostly because New York like, loves to rat on you all the time. So you have <laughs> to like, kind of be an often defense. Um, actually, most of the East Coast likes to rag on New Jersey. So, um, <laughs> you know, you're very much from New Jersey and you defend it at all costs. I don't think we have that same like it's a weird sort of mindset and we don't have it here, you know, a sense of identity, a sense of like collective pride kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. I feel like we used to like before my time, I feel like Oregon in the seventies had this thing. um, And Tom McCall was like the mascot basically. Um, But I feel, I totally think you're onto something. And I think that it's probably gotten worse over the last two years. Um, That's really interesting. I'm glad that we're not what our state used to be. Right. And we're moving away from what the state used to be and what we were founded upon. And I think it's sort of up to new leadership to develop what is our next pride of place. Like Mm. what what brings us all together Mm -hmm. and out together. Because I think it's the sort of like out together um, sense of place that we don't really have a good pulse on anymore mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um and it had i mean it had to have it has to continue to have so economic implications for mm-hmm. our region um well representative power thank you so much for coming on the podcast uh two quick questions first do you follow the new jersey twitter account <laughs> no you should go follow it's super funny and i think it speaks to what you were just talking the sense of like you defend new jersey at all costs that yeah. it's like a, tweeting as the state of new jersey and attacking everyone it's hilarious uh and then second new jersey question do you know the bl- know the band bleachers or jack antonoff mm-hmm. uh, they're my favorite band and he talks about new, Jer- new jersey all the time uh so i'm not surprised that you know them <laughs> okay I'm going to go check New Jersey Twitter. I mean, I do think we're missing those great anthems that sort of define who you are and your things that you do. Like, no joke. I know we're over time and I've got to go pick up my kid in like four minutes before they close. But, yeah. you know, in col- in high school, like, or heading to and from college or out in the summer, getting stuck on the highway. I mean, I was terribly cranky 
there was like an accident on George Washington Bridge. We were all there for four hours because no place to get on and off. Also, note, don't do that with the I-5 bridge. Um, <laughs> but I rolled down my windows and like I popped in my Bruce Springsteen CD and just like blared it. Yeah. And everybody was like singing along and there was, you know, it just made the day a lot better. But I joke that if you're not a fan of Bruce Springsteen or Bon Jovi or Frank Sinatra, they don't allow you to get a license. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. And, and um, I don't know, it just feels like to me lately, what are we proud of? And I wanna be proud of like a racial justice reckoning. I'm glad we did that. You know, and we don't know how it's gonna shake out over the next couple of years because there's more work to be done and you're not gonna do it in a couple couple months long protests, you know? And also like we'll have new leaders emerge, but we can't just be, please don't come here, California. Yeah. Although we should keep up that part of it, just, just more. <laughs> well, you're on fire, California, so we'll just take you in out of the graciousnesses of our hearts. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know? Okay, so our final question for all guests in our last like minute here. Uh, if folks are, our next podcast with you will be about your new job. Congratulations. That's another podcast. Um, but you still got some time in the legislature. Um, how can folks be in touch with you or read what you're up to? Um, what's the best place for them to go? We are still doing social media and just came up with like our next couple of months plan. Um, I have a wonderful team. Uh, if people need us for any reason um, or we can be a resource or help them, um, send us an email, um, give us a call. Uh, it's still great out being out in the community. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Representative Power. Thanks to everyone for listening and we'll see you back here next week.